So today I have my first meeting with my new business manager, Dan Fratelli, and um, he's really nice. He was set up with me through my actual manager, and uh, when I met with him for lunch, I started the conversation by saying, so shit's fucked, and he still is wants to be my business manager. So I'm bringing him this file folder, this accordion folder that I've kept under my kitchen sink for two years, uh, and it's full of receipts and checks and tax forms, I think, and uh, he was like, can you just scan and send me whatever relevant papers you think I need and I was like it's gonna make more sense if I just show up to your office with this accordion folder because I don't know what I'm supposed to send you so um this is me showing up at his office with the accordion folder these are my tax things yeah so this is like 2014 and 2015 I found them all right great it has all my checks and receipts in it that's great. From like two years. Is it great? Oh, from two years? Uh, a couple years, year, two yeah, years. You, probably, you want to separate it. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, I'm sorry, but did you file 2015? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh that's right. That's here. this, yeah. Right, 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 right. So um, I don't know what they did correctly. I think it was really bad. Yeah, you owed some money. Yeah. Okay. Well, you had some income with no taxes taken out. That's when you got to start paying quarterly estimates. We can amend the return and you're going to have to pay tax on that. I had no idea. Yeah. What we really need to do for this year is get a, an accounting and see where you're at. Mm -hmm. See, when you're, when you're not getting paid as an employee, you have to pay estimated tax payments quarterly, which are due April 15th, June 15th, September 15th, and uh, January 15th. Is there anything else that I should should do well i think the biggest thing for you right now is just keeping track of all your expenses you know your cell phone bill yeah going out to lunches and dinners business gifts research that you do your internet one thing that'd be really good is having like a calendar of where you're going you know all your meetings and all that stuff you want to have a calendar because if you do get audited by the irs they want to see you know that you you know where your meetings or that you're you know, it was all kind of legitimate that, you know, if you're, oh, claiming, yeah. Yeah, if you're claiming so much in business miles that, you know, you're writing down your trips, you know, went to go to these auditions, went to this rehearsal or whatever, went to see my manager. Went to I see. And, but here's the thing, why you want to get caught up now? Yeah. Because April 15th, if you were to pay your taxes, you know, for 2016, it's also the first due date of your first quarter estimate for 2017 from what you made from January 2017 to March 2017. You don't want to fall behind. Okay. And then from then on, it'll just be like April, June, January, September. Or well, yeah, September. September. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be bugging you. Yeah. yeah. That's for the best. Yeah. <laughs> You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoo-ah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it, or what to do with it, or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, everyone. I'm Gabby Dunn. Great with the ladies, bad with the monies. Let me tell you guys a quick story. I used to work at BuzzFeed, as you may know, by virtue of my numerous hilarious appearances in their videos, which, by the way, continue to get tons of views for which I am in no way compensated. More on that in a future episode. Anyway, you know that charming story you've heard a few times on the show now where I was sitting at my desk, 
checking my credit card balance, and then Garrett and Allison saw how out of control my spending was and shamed me about it a little bit. And at first I was like, I hate these people. I don't like this boy I'm hooking up with and my best friend. But then I fell in love with both of them so hard. And Allison's still my best friend, and Garrett's elevated from guy I'm hooking up with to boyfriend. Good for him, right? Anyway, that desk I was sitting at was at BuzzFeed. And I was a writer and an actor for their video team, which was cool, until I found out something really annoying. There was this guy I worked with who had the same job as me. And this guy, are you ready? He made $25,000 more than I did. Same exact job. $25,000 extra dollars. So, I found out about this, and I wanted answers. Because, as you devoted Bad With Money listeners are already aware, I am great. And I feel I deserve to be paid the same amount as this guy, who was, surprise, surprise, not as good at his job as I was. And when I started asking around, here's what I found out. He was getting paid more than me simply because he asked for an insane salary when he was hired. And BuzzFeed had said, okay, sure, that's it. That's all he did. It would never even have occurred to me to ask for $25,000 extra when I got hired at BuzzFeed or anywhere else for that matter. I was just grateful for the opportunity. Finding out that there was such a massive discrepancy in salary amongst people doing the same job was really frustrating. And like so many similar realizations I've talked about on the show, turns out I'm not alone. Recently, I spoke to Rebecca Greenfield, who's a reporter for Bloomberg Business and hosts a podcast called Game Plan. She did an episode where she went around her office asking coworkers how much they made. It was part of a segment about salary transparency, which Rebecca told me is really important. For people to be making fair wages, they should ask each other what they're making and know what they're making. And there should be full salary transparency. But so many workplaces have a culture of secrecy because it's in the interest of your bosses for everyone not to know. Like me, Rebecca was shocked when she found out how much money some of her coworkers were making. And also like me, she began to suspect that the discrepancies might have to do with more than just different levels of experience. I didn't know how to feel about it. I was uncomfortable, but also started making excuses for why I was making less, which I think is a very female thing. Uh-oh, friends. What's that sound? Is that the official Carrie Wade queer feminist anti-capitalist alarm? That's right, folks. When it comes to wage gaps and financial literacy, the situation for women is as bad as it's ever been. Rebecca explained that even if your male coworkers aren't making approximately the price of a nicely appointed Honda Accord more than you are, there's a good chance you're still earning less than them for no reason. Just this week, there was new Census Bureau data saying that the gender pay gap is still 80 cents to a man's dollar. And it was funny because the Wall Street Journal headline was like, gender pay gap, smallest, smallest ever. And then every other headline was like, gender pay gap hasn't budged in almost a decade. So women are starting out at a disadvantage through no fault of our own. And to make matters worse, that's before we even confront the hurdle of nothing about the financial industry making any goddamn sense. Do you guys remember this part of my interview with Garrett? This podcast that you're doing is very important because there's so many people our age who have no idea how money works. I don't know. I had always sort of assumed there was a base level knowledge in people, but there really isn't because it's intentionally complicated. So Garrett says that it is intentionally complicated. And that wasn't just him being a sweet boyfriend and trying to make me feel better about not understanding things. Rebecca told me that even fancy financial reporters like her have a hard time wrapping their heads around this nonsense. You get to work and you get all of this HR jargon and you're supposed to sift through it and know it. And as soon as I got to work, I covered this stuff and I had to talk to the personal finance experts who also cover this stuff to figure out what was the best thing to do with my 401k. And even they didn't know. And they cover... 
401ks for a living. So yeah, it's it's a really complicated language that even experts don't understand. So what the hell are we supposed to do? The thing is, there's this thing that men have been doing for generations to make extra money, besides just claiming more than their fair share from the salary pool. It's this totally bizarre magic trick, and they call it investing in the stock market. Perhaps you've heard of it. You saw Wolf of Wall Street. That's the only movie about investing. No, there's a lot of them. What's that one with Michael Douglas? Wall Street. Got it. Great. I'm doing great. Whether you've heard of the stock market or not, if you're a woman, there's a good chance you're going to go your whole life without taking advantage of investing because Wall Street culture is pretty much the worst. And historically, that's caused women to keep their distance from it, which Rebecca says is a damn shame because we look so good in suspenders. I'm just kidding. I don't think you have to wear suspenders to work on Wall Street. Rebecca would like to see us try a little harder. The behaviors of men uh, tend to be, they tend to be more aggressive in investing and it pays off. And women tend to do like more of their homework, as you would expect, and kind of wait. And like in in the investing world, that's not a good behavior. Um, So I think it's good to know these things and try to be educated and, you know, try to just overcome your natural inclination to not want to hang out with those people or be involved or try to find people who maybe speak to you. But who? Who will speak to us, Rebecca? Surely there's an insanely intelligent, badass feminist working within the system to help us build a bridge across this investment gap, right? Good news, y'all. Indeed there is. Her name is Sally Krawcheck, and after a long career as a CEO at places like City and Smith Barney, she recently started a new company called Elevest, which is specifically designed to help women put this mystical stock market thing to work for them. Sally's my guest this week, right after the break, and she's even going to tell me what a stock actually is. Because I don't know. Do you? Most people don't. It's weird and confusing. Sally to the rescue. Um, what What is a stock? What is a stock? A stock is ownership in a company. So think of it as a sliver of ownership of a company and a company's earnings. Why would a company want you to have ownership of them? Uh, companies want capital. And so they can raise capital. You've heard about them raising capital from venture capitalists sometimes mm-hmm. when they start. But they also raise capital in the public markets. Think New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ. Those are markets where a company can issue stock receive money so that they can grow the company, and then individuals own shares or a percentage of that company going forward. So is it better if you're starting, when someone's starting, is it better for them to start with like guaranteed companies, I guess? Like I would view Apple as one versus like... Oh, you have hurt me. There are no guarantees in investing. See, I don't know. None. Sally, I don't know anything. That's the point of this show. (laughs) Well, that's why you got to come to Elevest, right? Because what the the way to invest is to buy what's called an exchange traded fund or a mutual fund. These mm. are groups of securities: Apple plus IBM plus you know XYZ company plus GE plus Avon plus plus plus. All these companies they buy big groups of companies um, so that the risk is dispersed across the companies. So maybe Apple doesn't do as well as you expect it to do, but maybe IBM does better this time. And mm-hmm. so you diversify your risk in a very low-cost fashion across any number of investments. Cool. That makes sense. That's I, I did not know what a mutual fund was prior to that co- comment, so that's good. Um, so this is just kind of 
gambling. Well, I'd call it investing. Um, because, it, look, if you, if you go and buy a single stock, you're gambling. If, on the other hand, you buy a significant number of stocks in an ETF, in a diversified investment portfolio like what we do at Elevest, Mm-hmm. Then you know you are. I don't want to use the word betting on, but you are really investing in the broad markets. You're investing yeah. in some cases in the United in the companies of the United States of America. Right. And the economy tends to grow. Yeah. Um, companies that do well tend to grow a bit more. And so I wouldn't say that's gambling. I'd say that's making an investment in the future of our country. Yeah. That's good. That's a nice way to put it. So, okay. So how did you become interested in investing? What's your personal story around founding this company? Well, if we go way back, I wasn't interested in investing at all. I was interested in being a journalist. But when I came out of college, uh, Wall Street and investing paid so much more than being a journalist. And so I said to myself, well, I'll go to Wall Street for a few years and then I'll come back and I'll become a business journalist. But that never happened. I became a research analyst instead, which is sort of close to being a business journalist. And post the research crisis of the early 2000s, which of course seems like ancient history now, the business that I was running, Sanford Bernstein, was the one that had avoided the research conflicts of interest. So I went from running a small company, 386 people, to Smith Barney, which was probably 35,000 people, uh, when the CEO reached out to me to turn it around. So I, I don't know. When you talk about my interest in investing, it wasn't a moment that got me into it. It was a series of moments. Okay, wait. But so, because I was a journalist as well, and it would never in a million years have occurred to me to be like, oh, go it to Wall Street. I wouldn't even have known what Wall Street <laughs> did. Like, so your your sentence of being like, and then I was like, I'll go down to Wall Street because that's where money is. Like that, where does that come from? Well, remember, it was 1987. And my guess is you weren't coming out of college in 1987. Nope. So much, exactly. So much the way today, young people say, oh, I'll go to Silicon Valley. That's what I'll do. That's what it was in 1987. The cool thing to do was Wall Street and all those firms were on campus And, uh, oh, I remember I got a job offer from Goldman Sachs and asked my dad, what should I do? And he said, don't go to Goldman Sachs. I said, why? He said, nobody's ever heard of them before. (laughs) That's so crazy. So, so, but how did you even know how to start? Like, were you like getting books about like the terminology to use or were you just like walking around listening? Like, how did you? I did exactly what we females tend to do, which is I bought all the books in the summer before I started, read all the books and tried to know as much as I could before I began on my first day. I would think that Wall Street would be hostile, would be a hostile place to go. And indeed it was. You know, my first weeks there, I would find Xerox copies of male nether region parts on my desk. And you'd you'd sort of walk up to your desk and be like, oh, look, somebody left a piece of paper on my desk. I wonder, oh, my God, it's a male nether region. So, yeah, it was was pretty damn hostile. And you were just like, I'll stick it out? What was I going to do? I mean, I had moved to New York. Anything else. My parents are not of, you know, at the time did not have substantial means. They had three other kids who were in college or law school, so they couldn't support me. So I I needed the job. And, you know, this is what I signed up for. And dang it, I'm not a quitter. And it was a two-year program. And dang it, I'm going to make it through these two years if it's the last thing I do. Now, what led to Elevest, uh, the digital investment platform for women that I founded and am the CEO of, 
Um, that was a moment. That was a, I'm standing in my bathroom putting on my mascara, <laughs> and all of a sudden, and by the way, after years of people saying you should start a wealth management or asset management business for women, after which I said, that is so dumb, so dumb. Why did you think that was it. dumb? Because I was brought up in our society, and our society has told us that things for women have to be smaller and cuter and pinker and prettier. And all of the initiatives for women that I had seen in my entire career in the investing industry were all about talking about our feelings about money and dumbing it down and don't buy shoes, invest the difference. And the moment I had was, son of a gun, there is what I call a gender investing gap in this country that is costing your listeners tens of thousands, some of them hundreds of thousands, perhaps some of them millions of dollars over the course of their lives because Wall Street is not serving them well. That those initiatives that are all about discussing our feelings about money are not helping us at all. So was it sort of like, okay, I I can see why women would feel pushed out of like investing and of like, how can I make it palatable without dumbing it down? I'll tell you the initial thought. The initial thought was, son of a gun, the retirement savings crisis is a woman's crisis. That was the big thought. How so? Because we live six to eight years longer than men. So go to any nursing home in this country, and it's 80 to 85% female. Mm -hmm. And we retire with two-thirds the money of men. So essentially, if there's a retirement savings crisis, we're left with it. Right. Now, once you start to think that, you say, okay, well, a lot of the solutions, tax increases, entitlement cuts, now all of a sudden become about closing the gender pay gap, which by some research estimates will close the retirement savings gap by a third. But the one that hit me as I was going, of course, to the second eye and putting on the second coat of mascara was, <laughs> oh, my gosh, another solution is women invest less than men do. If we can really get women to invest their hard-earned money and pick up those, you know, as mentioned before, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars they're, quote, leaving on the table, then we've got something. And it was from there that I said, okay, so let's step back. What keeps women from investing? Well, number one, it's a lot of the myths around money that we just wouldn't accept in any other part of our lives that we're not as good at math as the boys are. Well, that's not true. That we just need more hand-holding. Oh, please give me a break. That we are too risk-averse. Somehow our lady parts keep us so risk-averse we can't invest. That's not true. We're risk-aware. That we need more financial education. Okay, sure. So do the guys. But they invest. And then I began to think about what is it of the investing industry that builds on that and it's, it's, for, it's for the guys. I mean, the financial advisors who worked for me were 85, 87% male. Love mm. males. Love males. Always say I've been married to a couple of them. But <laughs> that is not a group that looks like us. On top of that, it's full of war and sports analogies. Beat the market, outperform, pick the winners. You know, this programming is all, you know, NFL Sunday on you when you're talking investing. The markets are going to open. This one's winning. That one's not. And the symbol of the industry is a bull. A bull, yeah. an anatomically correct bull. It's a phallic <laughs> symbol. What else do I need to tell you? Right. So, I mean, I think like a lot of times we talk about the pay gap because women are like, I'm not even making as much money as these dudes. I don't have this money to throw around. Like they see investing as sort of like a throwing it around kind of thing. Well, they what we do is because it's not speaking our language, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and because when we think of risk, we, we don't think of standard deviation. We think of how much money can I lose? And the industry hasn't answered that question for us. So we do tend to think of it as being riskier than it is. While everybody sure wants more money, that's not the motivator. The motivator is the conceptualization of what I'm going to achieve and do in my life. What do I mean by that? I want to start a business. I want to buy a home. I want to have a family. I want to retire well. I want to take a trip around the world. There are these things I want to do. I don't have enough money today to do them. Can investing get me there? And so women think this way, and then they go to XYZ website, and it says, do you want a large cap value fund or a small cap growth ETF? And they say, you got to be kidding me. Right. So what That's we not what I'm asking. is something that actually works to how they think, which is come on into Elevest. Tell us some things about yourself. Tell us what you want to achieve. And we will calculate for you what you can afford. Sometimes there's bad news. But we enable her to make trade-offs that, okay, I won't have the house in six years. I'll go for nine years. I won't retire at 65. I'll retire at 67. We put together a fully bespoke investment portfolio for her whose goal is to get her to her goal or better in the significant majority of markets. And then we tell her if she's off track. Why do you think in terms of like a family, a typical family dynamic, a heteronormative family dynamic, I would picture like the dad is the one who's taking care of the investments. And like, it's so bizarre to me that that seems normal. Is that like a leftover from like the 50s being like, here's your allowance? Absolutely. This is part of that investing is more for men thing, right? It's to keep us from like knowing where the money is and knowing where the money's coming from, because that's like a huge... I have a friend right now who, like, can't get out of a relationship because the guy you know has it. all the money. You know it. I Look, I talk about this as being the best career advice women don't get because if the guys have got so much more money than we do, and it's a lot, it can be a lot, then you can't get out of a bad relationship because his lifestyle will go up and your mm-hmm. lifestyle will go down by a double-digit percent. You can't quit the job. You can't start the right. business. I would go so far to say that the work of feminism is not complete until we are financially equal with men. And we're working on that gender pay gap, but this gender investing gap has gotten almost no attention, and we need to work on this one too. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about seeing investment and and financial literacy for women as like a feminist cause, like a dire feminist cause? I think even some of the female journalists sell us short on this. They sort of Say, yeah, 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 women do need to invest more. But the real issue is the gender pay gap. And you say, oh, my gosh, two points. Number one, so let's say you broke your arm and broke your leg. Would you wait to fix your arm till you fixed your leg? I mean, give me a break, right? Mm -hmm. And secondly, it demonstrates that these individuals probably don't understand the power of compounding that it seems like a raise is such a big deal, and it is because you get this bump up in pay. Whereas investing, if you're investing steadily over time, you might think, eh, I can't add up to that much. But the truth is, Albert Einstein called compounding the eighth wonder of the world. And what it means is that if you begin investing even smaller amounts today, you get a return on that money, you get a return on the money plus the return, then you get a return on the money plus the return plus the return, and that that historically, the value of that compounding has been substantial. And so yeah. even for women who think, you know what, I don't have that much, I say every woman who has paid off her credit card debt and any other high interest rate debt should be putting 10% of her salary aside and investing. 
What are women doing now? Like, what do you find that they are doing instead of investing? Money in the bank. Just leaving it in the bank? In the bank. Now, because to me, okay, I feel like, because I don't know anything, so I feel like, okay, I should just not touch it because if I invest and it goes poorly, I'm a dum-dum and, like, all women are dum-dums. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, so you're wrong. Um, and you need to stop it. You just need to stop it because it's it's gonna it's killing you. So here's so women tend to oh I have this fear of failure. There's research that women take failure harder than men do. There is research, unfortunately, that it can be harder for us to come back from uh, a failure. But look, you don't have to tell anybody about this. The way to do this is to invest in a diversified investment portfolio of inexpensive. Exchange-traded funds or mutual funds obviously come to LFS. That's what we, we do and that's what we are. We tend to think of investing as I'm right or I'm wrong. It's mm. one and done. I'm going to invest next week. Well, maybe the market's too high. Well, okay. Maybe it is. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're an investing genius and you just didn't know it. But you invest next week and then you invest two weeks later a little bit and then you invest two weeks after that and mm. two weeks after that and two weeks after that. And you put that money aside over time. And so some markets, you will be an idiot, right? Oh, no, I bought at the wrong time. Some you'll be a genius. The truth is those things will even out to what we think in a diversified investment portfolio will be a 6% return over time. Mm -hmm. A heck of a lot better than the close to 0% so many people get in the banks. And and so we just think about it as a, I'm going to do it one time and I'll either win or I won't. That's not how it works. Here is what's certain, though. If you're a young woman, you're putting aside 10% of your salary mm-hmm. for retirement and you are leaving it in cash, what is certain is that your chances of living at your lifestyle level that you have today through your natural life, so living that six to eight years longer than men, mm-hmm. your chances of doing that are 0%. And for those of your listeners who are like, you know, I just don't like it. I don't want to do it. I've got a heterosexual male spouse or partner. He, he's going to do it. Well, a couple things. 90% of women manage their money on their own at some point in their lives. So you need to do it. And the worst, worst, worst time to try to learn about money and figure it out is when your spouse dies or when your spouse cheats on you, which happened to me. That was when I said, I can't let these norms, again, Southerner, grew up in the 80s, Mm-hmm. These these norms dictate my life because it's just dangerous. How did so you we, figure it out? I figured out my husband cheated on me because he left my sister's friggin' wedding earlier. That's pretty suspicious, isn't that it? That is so suspicious. So suspicious. Oh. So suspicious. What was even more suspicious is when there was a dark hair on the bed. So suspicious. And then finally I'm like, oh, right. Hey, dude, you cheating on me? He said no. And I said, are you sure? And he said No. And then for whatever reason, I thought that's sort of a weird answer. No, just like that, not how could you think that. And so I said, hey, John, one more time. And he's like, yeah, you're going to be mad. I was like, I am so mad. (laughs) I cannot tell you how mad I am. So then after that, did you have to like go through and find what money he had and and how and what money you had as a couple? And how do you, what do you You do now that you have it? You got it. You got it. I do think he was above board with it. But Would you believe that um, it's a Monday that you and I are talking on Friday? A friend of mine was in my offices telling me that her husband had defrauded her in their divorce, that it was the love of her life she never would have imagined. But, you know, they caught one, 
But there was one she found out about later that they didn't catch. And so what a heartbreaker. It's also this interesting thing where I wonder if women investing or women doing these things is uh, or having their own money or wanting to keep their money separate or whatever and protect themselves is seen as unattractive. like well, or masculine because it's viewed as such a masculine undertaking. Um, maybe it's still viewed as masculine. Um, or look. unattractive, like why isn't she? Why doesn't she trust me? Why isn't she like letting sure. me? That, I mean, it? All, all that emotional stuff comes into play. And what I am hopeful about is that as women become more aware of this gender investing gap, and as our society is shifting, such that powerful can be beautiful. Yeah, and I think it's so important to to protect yourself and to not. I don't know. Like, you I always am just like, if he can't handle it, then he can't fucking play. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Yeah. The second thing I would say, the other reason we need to do this is for our daughters. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how often people say to me, what should I tell my daughter about money? And it's like, I don't know. I don't even think it matters. What are you going to show her? Mm-hmm. I learned this years ago. You know, I kept telling my kids they need to exercise. You got to exercise. You got to exercise. And they said, Mommy, you're not. Yeah, son of a gun, you're right. And so I think what is, you know, super important is that our daughters see us and our sons, our daughters see us in control of the money, managing our money, talking about our money. Yeah. I also think it helps to have sons grow up seeing the women, women in the family being competent and powerful, too. Completely agree. I completely agree with that. And, And so much of it, again, it can be what you say, but it's always more what you do. And also I think a lot about like, you know, lesbian relationships as well. It's like you're both women and so like both of you ideally are going to be have to be competent with money and going to have to be looking towards your joint future together, I presume living to 105. That's right. <laughs> then you, you actually have the issue compounded, right? Because you've yeah. got two of you. You won't be making as much as the guys, unfortunately, until we can change that and you're living longer. I know. So you've sort of got the issue doubled. Yeah, it is tough because I think people think of it as like rich person. Like, I mean, poor people don't really invest, right? Well, you need, look, you need to have money to invest in and you need to pay off your high interest credit card debt before you invest. Yeah. But after that, and so where I do hear this and particularly for young, from young ladies, well, but I'm not making enough money. I don't have anything after my expenses in order to invest. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, that's looking at it the wrong way. What you should do is, again, after you've paid off your high interest rate debt, look at how much you're making, put aside 1% if that's all you can do, 2%, 5%, grow it to 10%. Again, if you have big goals in life, up to 20%. Mm-hmm. And adjust your spending elsewhere. That might mean us if you want to buy a house in X number of years and you're investing for it, that may mean you live in a smaller rental apartment today. It just might. But those are decisions and trade-offs that you have to make. They can be hard because fun today feels better than fun tomorrow. Ugh, that's a big one. I, I, I spoke to a financial psychologist who was talking about poor person thinking and rich person thinking. And my, my problem seems to be, because my parents were sort of like hippy-dippy, so the idea of like, oh, man, you can't take it with you, so you're going to die tomorrow. May as well, like, live it out. Mm-hmm. And, like, and like that seems so opposite of investing. Well... I understand, but maybe you can invest this part over here and then live for the day over, you know, X percent over here and live for the day over here. Because I got to tell you, you don't want to be 86 years old and out of money. 
I know. Yeah. You just don't, you know, and, and it's so easy because that just feels so far and, you know, something will happen, something will work out. And, you know, what's going to work out is you're going to be a burden to your kids if you have them. That's what's going to work out. So we've also talked a little bit about how, like, feminism is a lot about challenging the system and stuff. And, like, do you feel like Elevest kind of exists outside of, like, you know, the sexism that you encountered at other places? I mean, is that kind of a thing that is still going on? And do you think that oh, you guys for sort sure. of, like— Oh, for sure. It, you know, it's not as overt as when I was there. Mm-hmm. by any means. But, you know, and this isn't your world. If it were, I would say, okay, so I was a senior woman on Wall Street, and I can name a couple, handful of others who were there when I was there. And then I'd say, name one today. And you would say, uh, I can't. And you might name one, you might name two, but you can't name six. And in fact, and I haven't updated my numbers recently, but as of a year ago, Wall Street had less gender diversity. The investing industry had less gender diversity a year ago than it did 10 years ago. And so that's why, essentially, I came to the point of view, I have got to do something about this. I am not an entrepreneur. I was not planning to start this company. But the guys have been at this for years. They, they see the opportunity, but they haven't been able to get it right probably because they aren't women, and so they're seeing it through their middle-aged male brains. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, I've, I've, dang it, i got to do this. To be honest, you also see people who spring up with no financial experience trying to do some of these things. And that just, you know, I, I, no, no. <laughs> you know, no, that doesn't work. You need to trying, have Trying great to do tech. what? To start things, to start financial things for women? They just don't have any... Yeah. You know, you read some of the books out there. You read some of the websites out there. You read, and I won't go into any detail, but you just say, dear me, these are people who have stumbled upon this, and they're giving terrible advice. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, right? Because, like, it's this whole thing of, like, down with capitalism or whatever. But then it's also the idea of, like, well, work within the system to try to, like, yeah. better things for women. Yeah, and, and I and I don't know that it has to be those extremes. I mean, yeah, I be I came to the conclusion that we I would not be able to solve this from within a large company from scratch. So yeah. I mean, my my moment was when I was talking to the CEO of a very large bank about this, and I went through everything with him, including the fact that we women control five trillion dollars of investable assets, and I told him ninety percent of us you know, manage our money at some point on our own in our lives. And his comeback to me was, well, don't their husbands manage their money for them? Like, dude, Uh, dude, 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 you're not even listening. So, uh, you know, I came to the point of view that we needed to do it outside of a large institution. Yeah. Yeah. It's a new thing for me, too, to realize, because I am like a, a huge feminist, and it's very interesting to realize how money connects with that all of a sudden. Well, that's right. It's the final stage of feminism. Thank you so much, Sally, for coming on the show. It's been, like, so awesome. You're just, like, a very cool lady. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you. is right about financial independence being fourth wave feminism. I think she's maybe got the right idea. And look, you can work outside of the system and that's great. You can absolutely follow Bernie Sanders around in a van. I more power to you. I 
think that she's got the right idea about working within the system. Let's try that. Because for like 28 years, I've sort of been working on this like punk rock anarchist wavelength. Let's try the other way. Why not? I don't have to marry it. I'm going to invest, guys. I'm going to invest in me and in my heart and my feelings. I'm just kidding. I'm going to invest in a real company. I'm not that bad. I promise. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is a safe space. Also, feel free to tell your friends who have a weekly appointment with an analyst, and that means they talk to a money manager instead of a therapist. But they should probably be in therapy too, right? Everyone should. This podcast is sponsored by Therapy. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Our engineer is Dominic Biava. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin, and I am Gabby Dunn, and I will talk to you next time.